From Bowling Green State University and the Institute for the Study of Culture and Society, this is BG Ideas. I'm going to show you this with a wonderful experiment. You're listening to the Big Ideas Podcast, a collaboration between the Institute for the Study of Culture and Society and the School of Media and Communication at Bowling Green State University. I'm Dr. Jolie Sheffer, Associate Professor of English and American Culture Studies and the Director of ICS. Due to the ongoing pandemic, we're not recording in the studio, but remotely via phone and computer. Our sound quality may differ as a result. As always, the opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of BGSU or its employees. Bowling Green State University's campuses are situated in the Great Black Swamp and the Lower Great Lakes region. This land is the homeland of the Wyandot, Kickapoo, Miami, Potawatomi, Ottawa, and multiple other indigenous tribal nations, present and past, who were forcibly removed to and from the area. We recognize these historical and contemporary ties in our efforts towards decolonizing history, and we honor the indigenous individuals and communities who have been living and working on this land from time immemorial. Today I'm joined by Dr. Vivian Miller and Dr. Nancy Cosmall. Vivian is an assistant professor in social work in the College of Health and Human Services and serves as director of the Optimal Aging Institute at BGSU. Her research focuses on supporting older adults living in long-term care, including the mental health of vulnerable and isolated older adults. Nancy is an associate professor in the baccalaureate social work program at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. She worked in healthcare for more than a decade, including nursing homes, hospitals, home care, and adult daycare. Her research focuses on organizational culture, trauma-informed care, and the impact of trauma experiences on the workforce. Vivian and Nancy, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Today, we're discussing how the pandemic has specifically affected social connectivity for older adults. To start with, could you each tell us a little bit about how you got interested in working with older adults, this kind of population. Nancy, would you start us off? Sure. I It goes back way back for me. I mean, when I was a kid, I was the one who was always, you know, with the grandparents and the great-grandparents at the family gatherings. And so I always knew I wanted a career doing something with older adults, fell into social work, and worked in – my first job in social work was in long-term care and never looked back. And what about for you, Vivian? Similarly, um, time with my grandparents, and particularly in between my bachelor's and master's degree, I spent about every day with my late grandfather, who lived in a senior living facility, and I found myself leveraging my social work skills to advocate for him and other residents and found the importance of being there, being connected to him, and also being connected to other residents who didn't necessarily have family visit regularly. Could you describe some of the social connectivity practices and support systems used by nursing home and long-term care facilities prior to the pandemic? What was the kind of typical or what were the range of some of those typical support systems? Yeah, as a nursing home social worker, it was my job to visit with residents, to connect with residents. There were often activities coordinators and many volunteers who would come into the facility uh, family members, whether it be spouses or children of residents of the long-term care, would come in regularly, some visiting daily, multiple times a day, some visiting maybe just once a week. So there were always folks coming in and out of the nursing home. And even if it wasn't necessarily a family member of a resident, oftentimes 
what I saw was family members of other residents would kind of adopt a resident as their own loved one and really build that relationship and provide that support. And Nancy, what are some of the ways that these facilities responded to the pandemic at first? And then we can get into kind of what we what's happened more recently. But what were some of the abrupt changes that we've seen over the last year? Well, as the pandemic unfolded quickly, it became very apparent that nursing homes were vulnerable. Um, we all remember the outbreak in the Kirkland, Washington nursing home. And once that happened, things moved very quickly. Uh, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, which regulates nursing homes on a national level in early March of last year, suspended visitation, suspended group activities, suspended communal dining. So if you listen to what Vivian just described as the way nursing home residents stayed connected, that pretty much cut off all of them very abruptly. And how have some of those, you know, now that the pandemic were at more than a year, what are some of the more recent adjustments to those practices? What have we learned? Um, you know, we've learned that for a lot of residents, the isolation was harmful. There were cognitive declines, particularly for people with dementia. There was, were physical declines because people weren't moving around the nursing home as much. And there weren't family members and friends in the facility advocating for residents in the same way. At the same time, that staff was overwhelmed. That staff was now, everybody was in PPE all the time. That everybody was busier. As staff members got sick, staff shortages started taking place. There wasn't the support from outsiders, even just the social support, putting the advocacy, putting all of those pieces aside, even just somebody to sit with someone because things were just much harder and many fewer people were in there to help. From a regulatory perspective, things are starting to open up. At the national level, CMS has rescinded their previous order and has allowed visitation. How that's been applied has varied in different states. In some states, Still, if we still have if we have positive cases, then visitation is going to be more limited or limited to outdoor or limited to some of those other things that were put into place during the pandemic. Vivian, are there other you know additional consequences that you saw in your work on uh, residents of long-term care facilities on this sort of lack of those typical social supports. Nancy has outlined some of those physical and mental effects. Could you give some more to that and then talk about perhaps as things have opened up, have there been some creative or new ways of thinking about creating opportunities for social connection in those spaces? Yeah, I think that in addition to the cognitive decline and physical decline that a lot of residents experienced, I think the family members or the care partners, as we know it, also experienced maybe feelings of guilt, their own kind of challenges in accepting the fact that their loved one was within a facility, accepting the fact that they couldn't visit their loved one. Uh, one family member shared that they had kind of gone through the entire grieving process of losing their loved one because they were sure that they were never going to be able to actually see their parent in person again. 
So not only for the resident, but also for the care partners, I think for the staff to oftentimes family members and the care partners that come into the facility really play a big role in providing that care. So as Nancy noted, there were staffing shortages. There were also not the family members who were providing much of the care, whether it be assisting in feeding or assisting in changing clothes, whatever it looked like, doing laundry. So there was added burden to the staff while there were staff shortages. There were some creative ways that facilities took to try to ameliorate some of these gaps. Some facilities had their activities coordinator do Skype visits. So it would be a tablet or a computer that activities would have with the resident in their room. There were some window visits. I think particularly in what we saw in our work was these certainly didn't replace or even really come close to that physical visitation, primarily because a lot of residents have Alzheimer's type dementia or related disease. Some may be blind or have hearing difficulties. So there are these additional challenges that we're seeing residents experience where being on a computer really just isn't, it's not sufficient, and it it doesn't really match what a visit would be like with that physical touch, with the holding of the hand, with the patting of the back, things like that. For some family members, you know, we talk about, let's talk about the social connection for the family members. I remember in one facility I worked in, there were a group of wives who would come in every day for lunch and they would gather their husbands who were the residents around the table in the dining room and they would eat, they would sit there while their husbands ate, but they also became connected to each other. And as some of the the husbands had health complications and passed away, they supported each other. And I think we saw that in our research as well, that there were spouses who were there every day who were connected themselves with other residents and other family members, and they lost those connections too. Vivian, you currently serve as the director of the Optimal Aging Institute at BGSU. Could you explain a little bit about the purpose and work of the Institute? Sure. Our mission is to serve older adults and those that work with them. We're kind of doing a revamping of a 3.0. So far, we have an interdisciplinary board of about 13 faculty and staff across campus who are all invested in older adults and optimal aging. Um, We have three subcommittees within the OAI. One is a small kind of pilot funding grant that we hope to launch by the end of the semester where faculty will be able to apply for seed funding. We also have a community connection outreach committee and engagement and research committee. So as we're moving forward with this, what we hope to do is continue to get plugged into the Northwest Ohio community. One of our first activities was a panel discussion, which we have available on our website, where we recorded with one of our board members, as well as uh, a gentleman from Area Office on Aging of Northwest Ohio, and a treatment provider at Glen Bay uh, Treatment Center here in Northwest Ohio, talking about opioids and older adults. So in that, we talk about the problem of opioid addiction and where older adults can go. It's kind of busting some of the myths, and we just had a conversation about that. So it's available on our website. Our next panel discussion will be on vision changes in older adults, which we'll have coming up in May. We hope eventually to have a summit when everything is safe to be back in person, probably spring of 2022. 
Nancy, the pandemic obviously has made visible um, how negatively aging is treated in American culture generally. Much of the initial response to COVID was that it was something that would just affect older adults and that somehow that would be an acceptable outcome. What has the last year made clearer to you about how we need to rethink our approach to elder care? I think what's been made most clear to me is that elder care needs more resources, financial resources, and all kinds of other attention that that the issue of frontline workers has long been a problem. They are underpaid. They often don't have the external supports in their own life, you know, child care, health care, some of those kinds of services. And in this pandemic, as we've discussed earlier, we put inordinate pressure on them to be the family members, be the connection, be the the supports for older adults without supporting them in any way. And that's just not sustainable. Vivian, how do you think our treatment of older people compares or reflects how Americans tend to think about illness and disability generally? And what things do we need to reframe or understand differently? Yeah, ageism certainly is pervasive. And I think uh, a lot of folks think that all older adults might live in nursing homes and that they're frail and have a disability. Really, we see less than 5% of our older adults do live in long-term care, specifically in the nursing home setting. So active aging is a real thing. Many older adults are aging well in the community with their loved ones, with their families. Of course, there is that particular population in great need in in long-term care that needs that 24-7 medical nursing care. But I think that we can learn a lot from our older adults. In many other cultures, older adults are revered. And there is a sense of kind of filial piety of, of caring for our older generation. And I think that we can learn a lot from that here in, in the States. We're going to take a quick break. Thank you for listening to the Big Ideas Podcast. If you are passionate about Big Ideas, consider sponsoring this program. To have your name or organization mentioned here, please contact us at ics at bgsu.edu. Hello, and welcome back to the Big Ideas Podcast. Today, I'm talking to Dr. Vivian Miller and Dr. Nancy Kosmal about the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on older adults. This is for both of you. You've worked on this collaborative research study focusing on the experiences of spouses and partners of residents in long-term care. What was your process for conducting that research? And what were some of your findings about how COVID has impacted those relationships? And I'll let either of you start. Nancy and I have known each other for a couple of years through Age Social Work, which is the Association for Gerontology Education and Social Work. And we both have experience working in long-term care. And so Nancy and I were chatting and she posed the idea to me. She said, you know, I have an idea about getting out there, reaching out to the community and seeing about care partner experiences during this situation are you on board? And I said, absolutely. And next thing we know, we're launching, got IRB approval, we're launching a survey and distributing it via social media and had a a pretty nice response. So we recruited mostly through Twitter and Facebook and email listservs of like caregiver support groups and some of the professional organizations and had 
you know, participants fill out a survey and then let us know whether they were willing to participate in an interview. We did all of the interviews, you know, via WebEx. And as Vivian said, we had a pretty great response from, we call them care partners. So we were looking for anybody who was that primary person for someone in a nursing home, knowing that sometimes that person is not related by blood. And so we had mostly adult children. Um, I said the next subset would be spouses. And their experiences generally were pretty sad that that loss of connection, that watching their family member decline while not being able to watch their family member decline. I mean, for example, with the folks with dementia, most of our participants acknowledged that, yes, there would be a natural decline over an eight or a 10 month period, which is what it had been by the time we, we interviewed them. But they feel like it was worse because the family member wasn't getting the stimulation of visits and interaction. And my sense is that it was worse because they weren't there to see it happen gradually, that on March 13th, their family member still recognized them. And whenever they were able to get back into the facility, they didn't. And that's pretty stark. In February 2021, the two of you co-authored an opinion piece that appeared in the Baltimore Sun that shared some of the stories from this research. What was response like to the article? And why was it important to you to make your research available to the public in this way? Yeah. One thing that I think was so valuable and I'm so appreciative to to be on that work is that oftentimes in academia, we can write our research results and the findings can go to other academics to to move knowledge forward, to move kind of our research agenda forward. And we were able to reach an entirely different audience of community members reading this. And the response was generally positive. There were multiple folks who actually emailed afterwards sharing their own personal stories and thanking us for doing this work. As Vivian said, I think it's just so important that we don't get stuck just talking to other academics about these issues. And for something like this, which is a community-based issue that affects everybody, that we need to be having conversations with the community about it. We need to be having conversations with policymakers. We need to be having conversations across the board because Vivian and I are social workers. That means we're advocates and we want to make change. We don't do research to have it sit in the academic space. We do research because we want it to impact real people and make their lives better. And so that's why it's important to have those conversations outside of the academic space. Vivian, another component of your research is how the pandemic has disproportionately impacts older adults who are marginalized by sexual orientation, racial and economic inequalities, and their disability. Could you talk a little bit about some of the ways that the pandemic in particular has disproportionately affected some of these like multiply marginalized groups? Yeah, I think that particularly within long-term care, what we saw was the the pandemic finally shed a light on all of these problems that have been there, particularly for Black, Indigenous, and persons of color who live in long-term care. They are disproportionately impacted by these historical marginalizations at the intersection of socioeconomic status, race, ethnicity, and 
some of the work that I've done in the past has shown that back when physical restraints were used within these settings, we saw that facilities that had a greater proportion of persons of color use physical restraints at higher rates. And so kind of at the, at the intersection of all of these issues, this finally really came to light in the pandemic, particularly we're seeing about number of older adults who are dying within facilities that are a larger proportion of persons of color. The rating system within the Centers for Medicaid and Medicare Services for nursing homes, there's a lot of work to be done. And I think we're finally seeing this problem really surface. And Nancy, you've done a lot of work on, you know, trauma. How does, you know, the COVID pandemic help you think differently or maybe make more visible some of the your research into trauma-informed care and kind of how our practices are or aren't mitigating that? So trauma-informed care assumes that everyone has had some past trauma that we don't know about. And yet, it's not something that has been talked about prior to this point very much with older adults. There's been a lot of focus on children. There's been a lot of focus on populations that have addictions and things like that, but very little with older adults. And I've spent a lot of years talking about how that's a mistake and that older adults in some ways are a greater risk because they've had a lifetime to potentially accumulate, you know, bad bad things happening. And I think the pandemic has exacerbated trauma that people have experienced, isolation and things like that um, are already things that affect people who may have experienced trauma in the past. And so I think it just really raises how much more important it is for us to take these perspectives. And trauma-informed care is about making people feel safe and empowering them and making them feel like people around them are trustworthy. And in a pandemic, when you don't feel safe, I, I've heard residents talk about that the COVID was coming down the hall and they didn't know when it was going to get to them. And that's not a feeling of safety. Their staff didn't feel safe when they were wearing plastic bags as PPE. And so uh, I think that it's more important now than ever to be thinking about long-term care through that trauma-informed lens. And as we imagine kind of life after the pandemic crisis has abated, what are some of the what are some of the ways that you think connectivity and social interaction can help address some of these issues can sort of help mitigate that trauma, um help reengage individuals and communities? What are some things you are would advocate for as we are able to return to more in-person gathering and social connection? One thing that comes to mind for me, I recently read an article about the importance of civic engagement, particularly for older adults. So I think that one way in which we can really kind of mitigate some of that isolation for older adults who might be at home in the community and also those in long-term care is to do kind of volunteer buddy systems for those who were at home, those who are in nursing home settings, to redevelop that connection just with others and those partnerships, those friendships, those engagements with others. And I would say prior to the pandemic, there were many nursing home residents who were already isolated from their communities. But for those that weren't, 
it was things like church groups coming in or even just a member of their church coming to visit them. And so I think it's fostering those connections, making sure that community partners don't forget about their members just because their members enter a long-term care facility. And I think from the nursing home side, it's also about keeping up some of the electronic communications for people for whom that worked. We've talked about some of the, for the people who it didn't work so well for, but there were people who benefited from those visits from family with family members that were maybe more geographically distant, or they wouldn't have been able to visit even without the pandemic. And it's making sure that nursing homes have those resources to provide those on an ongoing basis. I'd like to conclude our conversation by asking you each to reflect on the moment and what lessons do you hope we learn about community connectivity for older adults that we can transfer into the future in changing practices, standards, and understandings? I think not forgetting about those who may live in settings other than at home, particularly those who are in long-term care. It's really easy to to just go on about our daily lives, but there are people who are really in need of connection and need of community with others. And specifically in that setting, I think it's important to not forget that we all have older loved ones in our lives. And if we can treat residents in long-term care as if they were loved ones of our own family, then things would go a lot better. I think it's, it's keeping older adults on the radar whenever you're doing anything involving community engagement. We leave older adults out when we talk about things like disaster preparedness. We leave older adults when we talk about housing in the community. We assume that those senior services are for them and we don't have to worry about them in our community zoning and our community planning. And it's considering we need to consider older adults in all of our systems, our communities, you know, transportation, housing, food, anything that we're doing on a community level. Thank you so much for joining me today, Vivian and Nancy. Listeners can keep up with ICS by following us on Twitter and Instagram at ICSBGSU and on our Facebook page. You can listen to Big Ideas wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Please subscribe and rate us on your preferred platform. Our producers are Chris Cavera and Marco Mendoza with sound editing by Deanna McKeegan and Marco Mendoza. This episode was researched and written by Carrie Hanlon. Thank you all for listening.